Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to this week's installment of Truth and Justice Reply Brief. In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing part six of the prosecutor's podcast's analysis of the Anand Syed case. I'm going to be doing two episodes on their part six, and not because I just can't fit it all in in one episode, but because I've made arrangements for a special guest to join me for this episode. I'm really excited for you guys to hear from this person, but they weren't available to record the interview until Wednesday. And I wanted to get this out before that interview takes place. Also, I don't want to just play an interview for you on this one because there are some details that need to be broken down and sourced. So I'm going to do that here in this episode. And then next week, I'll have the interview for you. This episode will actually be a quick one. And I know you all keep telling me to stop apologizing for the episodes being too long. I know that you want as much information as possible. So just to be clear, when I'm apologizing, I'm really apologizing to myself. I keep creating more work for myself. But the reality is that it just takes a long time to properly source all the actual evidence and correct the record. And speaking of correcting the record, I need to make a correction of my own. Previously, I said that in Inez Butler's first interview, she didn't mention the wrestling match. Well, this week, a listener pointed out to me that the interview that I cited was Inez's first interview with the Baltimore City Police. They're the ones that investigated the homicide. And that was after Hayes' body had been found and after Adnan had been arrested. In that interview, she describes Hay pulling up to the snack stand, the fuss about the skirt. Hay doesn't pay for her snacks because she's in a hurry, and she says that she has to pick up her cousin and then go to work. She said Hay had left her car running, there was no one in the car, and she asked the other people that were around the snack stand, and no one saw Adnan there. But I had missed that Inez had actually been interviewed by O'Shea from Baltimore County before Hay's body had been found. Remember, it was the county that was investigating the missing persons case. That interview occurred on February 1st. Hay was a missing person at that point. And Inez, through these interviews, the whole situation is kind of strange. So for context, by this point, Hay has been missing for about two weeks, a little over two weeks. And by now, the California rumor has made its way into the school after Debbie had her seven-hour phone conversation with Don, which Inez mentions in her statement. Remember in the interviews I read last week, after Chris's party, everyone thought Hay was with Don. It was specifically stated that the California rumor didn't come until later. Well, this interview happened after that. So here's the report. Quote, On February 1st, 1999, the assigned interviewed Inez Butler. Miss Butler said she spoke with Haley on January 13th, 99. 
Hay was upset and told Ms. Butler that she was having problems at home. Hay also said she wanted to contact her father in California. Ms. Butler said Hay was a manager for the wrestling team. Hay told Ms. Butler that she would not be at the match on January 13, 1999. End quote. So here, there's a wrestling match. And Hay's talking about contacting her father in California, even though her father doesn't live in California. But then after Hay's body was found, we get the detailed story about Hay buying snacks. There's no wrestling match, no California. We have a pickup of her cousin and going to work. And in other interviews about the wrestling match, Hay didn't say she wasn't coming to the wrestling match. She supposedly just didn't show up to the wrestling match. But here, Inez is saying that she told her she wouldn't go. So we have this interview, then we have the other interview that I shared with Baltimore City, where there's no wrestling match, and then at trial, we're back to the wrestling match. And there's also some question about Hay's skirt length. So I have the crime scene photos, and it looks to me like a short skirt that Hay was wearing. It's pulled up, so it's hard to tell. I've been told that the undisclosed team had said that it was a long skirt, which would contradict Inez saying that Hay was wearing a short skirt. But I haven't found any photos or notes about the skirt length in the case file, but more on that later. So really, my point is to make sure you have all the information. I was critical of Brett and Alice for not sharing the interview where Inez said that Hay was picking up her cousin and going to work, so it's only fair for me to be critical of myself also for missing the February 1st interview. The effect is that it does make Inez kind of unreliable. I have opinions about her evolving and changing stories, but they're just my opinions. Her saying that Hay told her that she wanted to contact her father in California after that rumor had started circulating definitely feels like she's like trying to be relevant and insert herself into the investigation. It'd be one thing if she said that she had heard that, but she says that Hay told her that, which, my opinion, I don't believe. The only person that has said that Hay herself said that was Don. None of her close friends or even Hope Schaub, who was a teacher that she actually regularly confided in, have ever heard Hay express any desire to go see her father in California. So it seems to me like Inez may be hearing rumors, like the co-manager of the wrestling team mixing up the day, and then warping them into conversations that she herself had with Hay. I don't know, but I can tell you that that is the full record on Inez, which takes her from having the most reliable statement because she got all the details right, to another one of the several witnesses that say they saw Hay and or Adnan after school in different places and not leaving together. So now with that clarification out of the way, let's dig into part six of the prosecutor's coverage. There's three elements to this episode. The first 40 minutes or so are covering the letters that Asia McLean wrote to Adnan while he was in jail regarding seeing him at the library on January 13th after school. Then they break down the crime scene and then the autopsy. So let's get started with Asia, since that was the beginning and longest portion of their episode. Okay, this is, <laughs> this is really bad. So what Brett and Alice are covering here are the two letters that Asia sent Adnan after he was arrested. Credit to them, they read the letters in their entirety. But what follows is truly bizarre. Remember back in episode one, I said that Brett and Alice's M.O. is basically gaslighting the audience, and I touched on this a little bit last week too. They did not and cannot prove that Adnan is guilty. The evidence 100% does not support that theory. So since, for some reason that I'll never understand, unless it's literally as simple as a money grab, they wanted to be the podcast that convinced people that Adnan is guilty, so they did that by making you question your own reality. 
Rather than focus on Adnan, they instead attack the arguments for his innocence. They lie and manipulate facts. They present extreme versions of legitimate theories and then debunk the hyperbolic versions of them. They remind you over and over again that they are the experts by constantly reminding you about, quote, all the cases they have tried. And a side note, someone should ask them how many cases they've actually tried in court. But anyway, they do all that and they make snide remarks about anyone who was waiting on the case that's not an expert like them. They make statements like, girl, you ain't never been in a courtroom. And that's a direct quote. And last but not least, they always laugh out loud at the possibility of anything being true that conflicts with their narrative. And as I've said over and over again, don't take my word for it. What I'm trying to do here is make you aware of what they're doing. You should then listen to their episodes and decide for yourself if I'm full of shit or if that's what they're actually doing. Brett and Alice defenders are super mad at me for accusing them of gaslighting. Brett even posted about it on their fan page, citing that as one of the reasons that they declined having a public conversation with me to defend their work. But here's the thing. I don't know what else to call it. Gaslighting is definitely on the list of buzzwords that have really taken hold over the last few years, and it's not something that I say lightly. That's exactly what they're doing, and I'm not going to pretend that it's not the case because it's hurting feelings. As I've said before, this is a real case, an active case that's being litigated right now. Anand Syed is right now fighting for his freedom. And they chose to take on this case and then manipulate and lie about all the facts, and then I'm supposed to feel bad about hurting their feelings. It's just not going to happen. And this episode presents a perfect example of how Brett and Alice operate. I told you last week that it was their part five that triggered me to create this reply brief series. But it was this episode where I realized that they were doing some serious damage. In one of our follow-up episodes on the main feed, I mentioned that a true crime podcaster that you all know texted me after listening to the prosecutors and told me that they were absolutely confused. And if I told you who that person was, you would all be shocked. This person is very sharp and most definitely not someone you would expect to be confused about a case. But episodes like this one literally left them questioning their own sanity. So I want you to listen to this five-minute clip that I put together. This is what I do when I'm conducting a statement analysis. I cut through the BS and the chit-chat, and I pull out the parts of the statement that are all connected, linear, or they should be. What you're about to hear are a series of sound bites from about a 20-minute segment of their episode. So if you listen to their part six, this starts right after they read Asia's second letter. And this is a classic example of how they manipulate listeners into seeing things their way. So these clips, they're all in order. I didn't move anything around. I just cut out the chit-chat in between. So you can see how they guide you into their way of thinking. And I think you're going to be gobsmacked. Over the course of 20 minutes, they start off by taking your guard down. They say that Asia writes like a kid. It comes off like a diary entry. Brett says he believes her, that she's being honest in the letter, and Alice agrees. She truly believes that Asia is telling the truth. And then you hear how these letters actually don't even matter. They have no effect on the case at all. And then suddenly, Asia didn't even write the second letter. Adnan wrote it. He wrote it because he was trying to trick the cops. Which, by the way, is ridiculous. It wasn't written to the cops. Nor would the cops have had access to it. For this information, for this alibi to come in, Asia would have to testify about it. You can't just enter a letter she wrote into evidence. 
The entire premise is nonsense, and they're lawyers, and they know that. But anyway, by the end of the segment, we move all the way from Asia is telling the truth and being honest in the letter to Asia didn't even write the letter, and wait for it, if, by some strange miracle, Asia is telling the truth, well, that's actually evidence that Adnan is guilty. And of course, they laugh and chuckle all the way along to let you know that it's actually funny that you would ever believe that Asia is telling the truth. It's a pretty wild ride, so I want you to listen for yourself. The weird thing about this, this letter only really matters if the state's timeline is correct. If the state's timeline is not correct, then this is a little bit of a sideshow. Think about Asia. That read more and more like a diary. I know. I know it did. And and we're going to talk about Asia a lot here in a second. I got to say, when I read these letters, I think she's being honest. I mean, I think she's being legitimate. I, I don't know. Like, really, It really sounds like she doesn't understand the importance of what's happening. She literally is saying, like, you might be prom king. Like, that's the last thing on his mind. He might spend the rest of his life in jail because she doesn't quite understand what's happening. Instead, it's like a, I get to be part of the biggest gossip in school by being the person writing him who could get him out of jail. And he's going to get out of jail. He's going to come back and be prom king. I mean, this is how she's talking. And again, we've already said this before, but she's still a kid. She's a teenager. And she talks like one and she's thinking like one. I don't think Asia is even necessarily embellishing. I think she really believes this is the day that she saw him, the timeline and everything. In this latest letter where it sounds like she's writing in her diary, I think this is really what she remembers and it really is what her recollection is. And we've talked about this all the time. People get dates and times wrong all the time. You guys heard us just read both of the letters in their entirety. You can see how it can be interpreted as a fake alibi and also as just a teenage girl kind of word vomiting onto a page. This letter in Asia's alibi does nothing for Adnan. I don't think it helps him at all. True, false, or in between. I just, I don't think it has really any impact on this case. I think this is one of those red herrings we see sometimes where people spend so much time on it, but it really doesn't matter. Does everybody understand what happened here? <laughs> so Asia sends her first letter, right? Adnan gets that letter. He reads the letter. He then writes a letter for her to send back to him that he's going to use. I mean, this is 100% what happened. Like, people can disagree with me and say I'm speculating all they want. This is 100% what happened. He wrote the letter. They faked the date so it would seem like that's not what happened, right? But there's no way she sent this letter to him one day later. Basically, he had her backdate it to the day after her initial letter was addressed. He had her include things that he thought were good arguments for him, like the fact that how could he have moved the car around without someone to help and all that other stuff. There are no markings on you. Wouldn't she have struggled? Like all that stuff. Like he wrote all this. He sent it to her. She typed it up and she sent it back to him. How significant is it? I mean, look. If Adnan's innocent, he doesn't want to go to jail for the rest of his life, and he sees Asia as a possible get-out-of-jail-free card, and she's so obviously manipulatable. You know, maybe some of the stuff is stuff she just threw in there, but the important parts, the parts where she's sort of highlighting the problems, I think are things that Adnan had asked her to say in this written letter, and then he turns the letters over to his attorneys. They knew if we put this person up, 
we show this letter where she's basically begging, you know, to help him manufacture an alibi. Then the prosecution puts up Jawan Gordon, who says, yeah, he totally had her write that second letter. All that's going to be really bad for Adnan. So a smart lawyer wouldn't use Asia. And that's something that's been lost in all this sort of 15 years later discussion of why wasn't Asia ever called? There were good reasons not to call her. Since she had handwritten him a letter, why didn't he send back a letter and have her handwrite it back? Like how, how lazy, you know, <laughs> was it? It is pretty hilarious. He's a pretty smart guy because in the first letter, remember the handwritten letter when Asia spells Adnan's name correctly and then she writes in parentheses, I hope I spelled it right. But in the type letter, it's spelled A-D-N-O-N incorrectly. <laughs> so, you know, if he did do that, it's really, it's, it's almost like he's looking at her letter and be like, she doesn't really know how to spell my name. This, this is perfect because I wouldn't misspell my own name. So a misspelling here is going to throw off the cops. I think if he was there talking to Asia that day, it's as much evidence of his guilt as it is of his innocence. You know, after listening to that, it's becoming more and more apparent why Brett and Alice keep insisting that it's perfectly normal for Jay to constantly be changing his story. Because that's exactly what they're doing. That's why people are so confused. You just heard that in order. In a single segment breakdown of Asia's letter, they go from saying they 100% believe that her letters are being honest to Adnan wrote the letter and Asia is, quote, desperate to help him manufacture an alibi. And oh, by the way, just in case you still believe that Asia wrote this letter and she is telling the truth, Adnan being in the library is actually just as much evidence of his guilt as it is of his innocence. And this is the same thing as them telling you that the police received the cell site locations on February 22nd, and then later telling you that the police didn't have the cell site locations before interviewing Jen on the 27th. And you're just left confused. Wait, what? Didn't you just, you just said. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, now it's time to move quickly. 
I'm not going to reread the letters to you. They bring Asia up again in later episodes, and I might read them then, but they are up on our website if you want to read them in their entirety. At the beginning of the alibi discussion, it's mentioned that Adnan's defense had 80 witnesses on the witness list before trial that were supposed to testify that Adnan was at the mosque that night. But they only ended up calling his dad to testify on the subject. And I think this is a good spot to explain a couple things about the alibi defenses. Brett and Alice say a few times that the defense was investigating this at the same time as the prosecution after Adnan's arrest. They say that the defense had the same information. But that is definitely not true. Not even close. The defense was actually fighting for months to get any information at all about what the prosecution was even claiming Adnan did. The state would not disclose who their witnesses were, what the witnesses said, how Hay was killed, where Hay was killed, or when Hay was killed. It took five months of fighting before the state finally revealed to the defense where Hay's car was found. That was in August. Adnan was arrested on March 1st. So imagine trying to prepare a defense or establish an alibi when you have no idea how, when, where, and with whom you supposedly murdered someone. Adnan's trial was originally set for October, and it wasn't until September that it was finally disclosed that Jay Wilds was the, quote, co-conspirator. So now they had a name, but the state was still refusing to turn over his statements, and they still had no idea who Jen was. They wouldn't even give them her name. Which means that months after the murder, with the trial date approaching, the defense still had no idea what they were defending against. The day before the original trial date, on October 12th, the defense requested a continuance because again, now eight months in, they still had not been provided with Jay or Jen's statements. They had no idea what time everything supposedly occurred, or where. They knew the body was buried in Lincoln Park, They did not know that the murder was alleged to have taken place at Best Buy. They didn't know about the trunk pop. They didn't know that the cell towers were being used for times and locations. They didn't know that the burial time presented would be in the 7 o'clock hour. They didn't know anything. Adnan's first trial began on December 8th. On the day Jay testified, the state finally turned over some of his statements, but not all of them. They left out, of course, the April 13th statement where he said that he actually helped Adnan murder Hay at Patapsco State Park. Again, another one that's not going to get mentioned by anyone who believes that Adnan is guilty. But the point is, it was on the day that he testified. Before that very moment, they had no idea where, when, or how the state was claiming that Adnan killed Hay. So why did they have all the Moss people ready to testify for an alibi? Because they didn't know when he needed an alibi. They didn't know that the claim would be that Hay was buried at 7 p.m. and everything was over before Adnan ever got to the mosque. Then once they did, there's no point in calling a bunch of people to testify that Adnan was somewhere after the state claims the murder happened. And then going into the second trial, they now had Jay's statements to work off of. But that really wasn't any help. Those statements say that Adnan called him after 3.40. And if you take all the trips and times in those statements, it would have been like 2 in the morning by the time the burial happened. They had no idea that the state was going to just disregard all of that and create this 236 timeline out of thin air. So anyway, that's why the 80 witnesses never testified. And when they say that the defense had the same information as the state right from the beginning, well, they're they're just lying. So, getting back to Asia's letters. In a later episode, they talk about Asia testifying in 2016 about these letters 
and that's where we'll really get into the details. In this episode, I just want to address a few select topics. First is what I mentioned earlier. Their entire premise is flawed. They make this big deal about how Adnan wrote the second letter and how it was all a conspiracy to create an alibi for himself and trick the cops, but that's not how this works. Literally him writing a letter to Asia and sending it back to himself would do absolutely nothing to help him. Nothing. The whole trick the cops idea is ridiculous. The cops didn't have these letters. They were written to Adnan and Adnan gave them to his attorney. What should have happened next then is that Adnan's defense should have talked to Asia and determined whether her alibi would be useful. The state wouldn't even know Asia existed unless the defense added her to a witness list before trial. And then she would have to testify. There's no world where these letters would be entered into evidence as an alibi. Let me say it again. Asia would have to testify. I've always thought this argument was such a weird take, and Brett and Alice certainly aren't Neil Armstrong here. They're just piggybacking off of other people's theories, and that's why they sound silly when they're putting it forward, because they're lawyers, like I said. They know how ridiculous this is. And keep in mind, this whole argument about this letter didn't surface until after Serial. That's when Asia found out that Kevin Urich had lied in court and said that Asia told him that she had been pressured by the family to write not these letters, but an affidavit. After Adnan's trial, a review of the defense file revealed these two letters, and that's when Rabia went to speak with Asia to ask her if Adnan's attorney ever contacted her. Asia then signed an affidavit stating that they indeed had not. This created the ineffective assistance of counsel claim for Adnan's appeal. Because at trial, the state had ignored everything Jay and Jen had said and convicted him based on a timeline that had him calling Jay after the murder at 2.36 p.m. Well, at that time, no one really understood how that timeline worked, because it doesn't, but it made Asia saying that she saw Adnan in the library until 2.40 incredibly important. And so most of you know the story. Leading up to Adnan's appeal hearing, Asia contacted the prosecutor to see what was going on, and she says that he pressured her and convinced her that she should not get involved. And so she didn't. She didn't go testify. But then instead, Yurik did testify. And he told the judge that Asia had told him that she only wrote the affidavit because of pressure from Adnan's family. Once that information became public, Asia spoke up about Yurik's lies. Then we jumped to 2016 at the PCR hearing, and this time Asia was ready to testify about what really happened. And the state was in trouble now. And that is when the attacks on these original letters began. In order to prove their claim of ineffective assistance of counsel, the letters and affidavits were made public, and the state needed to use the letters to try and prove that even if Gutierrez had contacted Asia, she would have been a bad alibi witness because she was being dishonest. They argued that these letters were the reason that Gutierrez never contacted Asia, because she read them and she didn't believe her. At the end of the day, Asia was easily able to defend all of the claims made about the letter being written by Adnan. I know I was there in person and I watched it, but there's more on that in another episode. But the point is, these letters were never going to trick the cops. They were never going to trick a jury. They would have never seen the light of day had Asia been interviewed by the defense in the beginning and she testified at trial. That argument is pathetic. And furthermore, consider this. If you're one of the people who are mad at me or are upset because I say that Brett and Alice are lying. Asia McLean has sworn and signed affidavits. She has testified under oath and given public interviews and even wrote a book about this. 
and Breton Alice on their very public platform have stated without question that she's lying. They have not just accused her of lying as well as perjury, they stated it as a fact. Let me remind you again of how they treated this woman after she has sworn under oath on multiple occasions that she wrote those letters on her own, she was telling the truth, and she was not influenced by Adnan whatsoever, and in fact, she never heard from Adnan after she wrote the letters. Does everybody understand what happened here? (laughs) So Asia sends her first letter, right? Adnan gets that letter. He reads the letter. He then writes a letter for her to send back to him that he's going to use. I mean, this is 100% what happened. That is a public accusation of perjury and lying. So forgive me if I'm not apologetic when I read to you directly from source documents that they are citing and point out that they have changed the words to fit their narrative, provably lying to you. And I call it what it is. It's a fucking lie. And that's exactly what I'm going to call it every single time as we go through because they don't have enough respect and decency not to use their platform to attack Asia and call her a liar and accuse her of perjury. I'm not pulling punches for them. They spend this entire series accusing people of lying and both directly and indirectly attacking the work that everyone else has ever done in this case. And that's how they operate, which is fine, but I'm not out to protect their feelings. You try to make a buck by misleading hundreds of thousands of people about an active and ongoing legal case, and you will be fact-checked and you will be exposed to hundreds of thousands of people. Moving on, I'm just going to hit on a few problematic parts of their coverage of the letters. They make the claim that Asia is saying that Adnan was in the library until 2.40 and that that claim conflicts with what Adnan himself told Adcock, that he got held up and was too late to get a ride with Hay. And I don't even understand how they come to that conclusion. Getting caught up in a conversation with Asia would be the thing that held him up, right? You can believe that it's true or not that this interaction happened, but to say that if it did happen means that he couldn't have been late to get the ride with Hay, that doesn't make any sense to me. But again, that's part of that slow burn to questioning your own reality. They pepper in stuff like this all the time. Asia can't be telling the truth because her statement conflicts with Adnan's statement. So they just say it, but it's not true. Then Alice says that it would have been unusual for Adnan to check his email in the off-campus library. She says he normally uses the computers in the school library. I'm not sure where that comes from because Adnan has said that he and lots of students actually have said that they use the library across the parking lot all the time. Also, if it's so odd, then why was Asia there? And if Asia just got the wrong day, then why was it not unusual for Adnan to be there a different day? So, like, how unusual was it? And then comes the interesting twist. Brett says that Woodlawn students were known to go to the library to meet for rides to avoid the bus loop. And this is where the, quote, it's just as much evidence of his guilt as his innocence comes from. Brett says that it actually makes sense that if Adnan was getting a ride from Hay, he would have been in the library to meet her. So now we're back to Asia did see Adnan in the library, but when Asia left, Adnan walked out behind her and got into Hay's car, who picked him up at the library to avoid the bus loop. So, okay, first of all, that theory completely disregards all of the witness statements who said they saw Hay and Adnan in the school after 2.45. Debbie talking to Adnan in the guidance counselor's office and then talking to Hay by the door. 
Becky seeing Hay tell Adnan she couldn't give him a ride, and then they walk away in opposite directions, kind of like Adnan was going to the guidance office and Hay was headed to the door. It ignores all the other witnesses in the school at that time. But also, it has no basis in logic. Yes, people would meet rides at the library when they were meeting someone who was coming from off campus to pick them up, like Asia was doing. The bus loop encircled the student parking lot. Remember on Serial, this was explained and Sarah did her little experiment. Students, like Hay, would have to wait for the bus loop to clear before they could leave the school or drive to the library. They were trapped in the parking lot. It would make zero sense to go to the library to get a ride from Hay if she and Adnan were both coming from inside the school. None. And moving on. So Brett and Alice make the shift to Asia didn't write this letter based on police notes from an interview with Adnan's friend, Juwan Gordon. Let me read those notes to you so you get the full picture. I'm just going to read the relevant portion, but the full interview notes are on our website. So these are the notes from Juwan's interview with the police. Quote, Adnan wrote me a letter. He called yesterday, but I wasn't home. Wrote Adnan back. He wrote a letter to a girl to type up with his address on it, but she got it wrong. 101 East Eager Street. Asia, question mark, 12th grade, end quote. Well, that's all they read, just that portion. The implication being that Juwan was telling the detectives that he knew that Adnan had written the second letter for Asia. But to continue on with the notes regarding Adnan writing letters, the next line says, quote, I got one, Justin Ager got one, Justin was in English class, they grew up together, he's not Muslim, end quote. So Juwan is saying that Adnan sent letters to him, his friend Justin, and a girl. And the note says Asia with a question mark, but these are just notes, so we don't know if that means that Juwan said maybe Asia, or if for some reason the detective was thinking maybe it was Asia. And so Brett and Alice spend quite a bit of time kind of yucking it up about how Juwan very clearly told the police that he knew Adnan had written the second alibi letter. They're sure of it. 100% what happened, is what Brett said. But what they didn't tell you was that Juwan was planning to testify at Adnan's PCR hearing about this very issue. But rather than testify, the judge requested that he just writes an affidavit instead. So we don't have to guess or speculate about what Juwan was saying in this interview. We don't have to wonder what these notes mean, because he, Juwan, tells us firsthand. And sadly, Brett, at the very least, knows about this affidavit. Very publicly, Colin Miller tweeted it at him just to make sure that he was aware of it. But again, no sense letting silly facts get in the way of your good story. Here's Juwan's sworn statement. Quote, I am aware that Adnan tried to get character letters to be used during his, and I can't read what it says there, but I believe he's talking about the bail hearing. He sent me a letter asking me to draft a character letter on his behalf after his arrest. I am aware that he reached out to others asking that they write character letters on his behalf as well. In my interview with police on April 9th, 1999, I was not suggesting that Adnan or anyone else did anything deceptive. I recall telling the police that Adnan talked about asking Asia to write a character letter. He may have asked her by letter just like he did with me and Justin. I do not know if he ever sent the letter, nor do I know if she ever received it. I have no knowledge of Adnan asking Asia to write anything fraudulent, or with intention of misrepresenting anything to the court. I was not in any way suggesting that in my interview with police. 
I swear and attest that everything contained within this affidavit is to the best of my recollection, true and accurate. Signed, Juwan Gordon. End quote. Juwan was not telling the police that Adnan was writing a letter for Asia to send him for an alibi. He was just explaining that Adnan was asking for character letters for his bail hearing. And if you read Asia's letters, it's pretty wild to claim that Adnan wrote any of it. Asia's talking about what she's doing at school, what people are saying. She's describing her experiences. Like Brett and Alice said, well, they started to say at the beginning, it kind of reads like a diary. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. To wrap things up, we're going to talk about the crime scene evidence and the autopsy. For the crime scene, Brett and Alice don't really get into it very much. They lay the groundwork in this episode for a point that they're going to try to make in a future episode. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a spoiler here. In this episode, Brett says that the evidence at the burial site is irrelevant. He blows it off like there's nothing really here, nothing to see. In fact, the only evidence that he really talks about are the two red fibers found in the burial site. Of course, because Jay will later say that Adnan was wearing red gloves, which, depending on your perspective, is either evidence that Jay is telling the truth about Adnan wearing red winter gloves after making a phone call from a payphone and walking across a parking lot in an almost 60-degree day because the red fibers that were never matched to any glove or each other, as it were, corroborated that statement. Or if you're in the innocent camp, it's an indication that since the detectives knew about the red fibers, they pushed the red gloves into Jay's narrative. But they don't talk much about anything else. Like, the hairs that were found in the grave, or the fact that two of the hairs don't match Jay, Adnan, or Hay. Stuff like that is, quote, irrelevant. But it seems to me that part of the reason they're blowing off the evidence found in the grave is because in a later episode, when they're really attacking the lividity evidence, they're going to say that there could have been something in that grave that made the double diamond pressure marks on Hay's shoulder. In that episode, they claim that, quote, it's not like they sifted through all the dirt at the burial site. So they can't tell you about all the tiny pieces of evidence that were found at the burial site now, because that might leave you wondering, well, how did they find those hairs and fibers at the grave without sifting through the dirt? The answer is, they couldn't. They did sift through the dirt. Hay's body was exhumed like an archaeological dig. Everything was sifted through. And that's how they found those fibers and the hairs. Now, in this episode, they touch on lividity evidence, but they really dig into it in a later episode. When we get there, that's when we'll do the same. I'll go over what the actual expert found in regards to lividity. But here they just go through the autopsy where it's noted that Hay had fixed frontal lividity. They explain what lividity is, the pooling of blood in the lowest points of a body based on gravity, and that it takes 8 to 12 hours for that lividity to fix. Most of you are probably aware of the fact that the lividity evidence in this case clearly proves that Hay was not buried in the 7 o'clock hour. She had to be laying flat and face down for 8 to 12 hours before she was moved to the burial site, which means that she could have been buried before 11 p.m. Remember, their methodology is simply to eliminate the bad evidence and then leave you with Adnan killing Hay as the only possibility. And this is most definitely bad evidence for the state. The autopsy report says that Hay was buried on her right side but had frontal lividity. 
which of course is impossible if she was buried four hours after she was killed. Especially when you consider that according to Jay, she was, quote, pretzeled up in her trunk for the hours leading up to the burial. So how do they get around that? Well, that's easy. They just say the Emmy is wrong. Hay wasn't on her right side. She was twisted. Her lower half was on its side, but the upper portion of her body was twisted flat, face down. That's why there was lividity on her face and chest. Now, like I said, we're going to get into all of this, including the pressure marks in a later episode. But for now, let me just describe to you exactly how Hay's body was positioned. I have the crime scene photos. So her hips were completely perpendicular to the ground. Her right hip was down and her left hip was up. So her right hip was actually the lowest part of her body, which means it should have been where we would find the most prominent lividity because gravity. The blood would pool down both of her legs, which were angled up. Her right foot was actually exposed above the ground and from her torso. Her hair and right hand were also exposed above the ground. So if you were to lay on the ground on your right hip, slightly bend your left leg at the knee, and your right leg is under it but angled up so that your foot is behind your left and higher than the left, like at the same height as the left hip. That's how her lower half was positioned. So like I said, she should have had massive lividity in her right hip. That was the lowest point. Now the top half is a little more confusing. Hay was twisted a bit. Her face was pointed down into the left. Some of her hair was actually exposed above the ground too but her right hand was also exposed above the dirt in front of her left shoulder. So her right arm was under her body and bent at the elbow, so her hand was up higher than her left shoulder. Now, I'm no doctor, but you can't have your hand in that position and your hips in that position and your feet in that position and have your chest be flat and horizontal to the ground. She was on her side, just like the actual report says and we see in the crime scene photos. The two highest points on Hay's body were her head and her feet. The lowest point was her right hip. No one has or can dispute that. The fact that her right hip is not showing any signs of lividity, that's the giveaway. And now, the last thing I'm going to touch on is another straight-up misrepresentation of what the evidence says. Now, like I said earlier, there's some question about Hay's skirt length. I've been told that somehow in the HBO documentary, it was shown that Hay was wearing a long black skirt and not a short black skirt like Inez Butler remembered. Now, for the record, Inez was shown Hay's clothing from the burial site at trial, and she said that that was indeed what she was wearing on the day she saw her. But the point is that I have not been able to find through the crime scene photos or reports how long Hay's skirt actually was. So I'm genuinely requesting that if you know how it was determined, the length of her skirt, please let me know and I'll be sure to get that information out next week. I want to be accurate. But when re-listening to this episode, I thought I found it. So Brett and Alice are reading through the autopsy report and they say this. At the time that Hayes' body was found, she was wearing pantyhose, a white bra, gray shirt, long black skirt, and a white jacket. So there you have it. It's right there in the autopsy report. Alice just read it. But then I read the autopsy report for myself, and this is what it actually says. Hay was wearing, quote, white sweater slash jacket, one gray shirt, one white bra, one black skirt, and one pantyhose, end quote. Isn't that interesting? They're covering the autopsy report. This is the autopsy report. 
And Alice reads off exactly what it says Hay was wearing in the autopsy report, but then she changes one black skirt to long black skirt. With that, that's all I have for you this week. Uh, But between when I started writing this episode and now, there seems to be some complications with the interview that I mentioned at the top. So I'll let you guys know what the plan is. After re-listening to this episode, I reached out to Asia McLean, and I asked her if she would like to come on and tell you firsthand how all of this actually went down, and also to tell you how she feels about Brett and Alice publicly accusing her of lying under oath to hundreds of thousands of people. Asia was all for it, and we had the interview scheduled for this Wednesday, but she's dealing with a sick kid, and it's kind of up in the air when we're going to get the interview done now. So if it works out, next week you'll be hearing directly from Asia herself. Hopefully that's still going to happen. I know that she said that every time she does an interview like this, she is ruthlessly attacked online. So it wouldn't surprise me if she ends up opting out, but we'll see. As of right now, she says she's in. If not, we're just going to keep on trucking next week with part seven. Either way, I'll be back next week on the special bonus series of Truth and Justice, Reply Brief. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com designed, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay Wood-Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.